As Haley pointed out, our stained glass up here tells the story that she just read. Um, and it just, it tells our entire story. The, all of the colors that we have in here, it's, there's a reason why we see all of the liturgical colors in this stained glass. It tells the story, I guess, of Jesus ascending into heaven, but it also tells the story of the incarnation, Christ coming down to earth and being among us. And it tells the story of Pentecost, of the Holy Spirit with us. It tells the story of creation and life itself leading up to new creation. It's just, it's a beautiful piece of artwork for all of those reasons. Um, and especially on the day of the Ascension, we celebrate this piece of stained glass, but it's really something that tells our story throughout the entire year as well. Back on the third Sunday of Easter, the gospel reading was from John 21. And the question that we asked with that passage was, what comes next? What comes after resurrection? What do we do now? What does this mean for us? I think today's gospel reading asks the same question. Today is the seventh Sunday of Easter. This past Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension, the day when we remember Jesus ascending into heaven and commissioning the disciples to preach the gospel to all the world. And so today we're celebrating the Ascension. We're reading the text from the Feast of the Ascension. But it is the seventh Sunday of Easter. And throughout Easter, we have asked, what comes after resurrection? What does resurrection mean for us? What do we do now? And I think that we've answered this question well. We've recognized that Easter calls us to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It calls us to watch for glimpses of resurrection now, and it calls us to anticipate the fullness of resurrection and the renewal of all things that's yet to come. We've recognized that Easter calls us to consider the kind of Messiah that we want Jesus to be and to consider the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. And we've determined that what comes next after resurrection is the anticipation of more resurrection. And we anticipate this when we live as if we actually believe that resurrection is true. And now to end it all, we have the story of the ascension and we might find ourselves asking the same question. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do now? So Jesus is risen and now Christ has ascended into heaven, but what does this mean for us? What comes next for us? What is this passage telling us to do? What do we do now? If you've seen the movie Finding Nemo, you've probably seen the scene towards the very end with the credits where the fish in the, in the dentist's office finally do escape in their individual baggies and they like get into the ocean and the big one just goes, now what? Like. That's kind of what we do with these passages sometimes. We're just floating in baggies in the ocean saying, okay, now what? So I think it'll help if we start by looking at this passage and looking at what it actually says versus what it does not say. This passage says to preach a message of a change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins. And throughout our history, the church has often taken these words to mean that the answer to the question, what do we do now, is we win lost souls. 
And how do we win lost souls? By telling people that they're sinners and that they're going to burn in hell unless they come to church and start to believe the things that we believe, of course. Y'all, I want to start off by saying that this answer is wrong. It is damaging. It is hurtful. It is a horrific representation of the character and nature and mission of Christ. To be clear, this passage does say to preach a message of a change of heart and life. But it does not say we need to tell people that they are bad, dirty, rotten sinners who are going to hell. It does not say that we need to convince people God hates them unless they change. It does not say that people are nothing more than lost souls that need to be found or somehow won over. I can't believe the church has made it this long thinking people are things that just need to be won. It does not say forgiveness is earned by what we do to change our hearts and lives. And it does not say that we get to determine what a changed heart and life looks like. For so long, the church has taken these words to mean that a changed heart and life are somehow means of earning forgiveness. And the problem with this is that it's an anxious way to exist. But even more so, it implies that God's forgiveness somehow responds to us. And that's not how this works. A changed heart and life are our response to forgiveness, not the other way around. A changed heart and life are not means of earning forgiveness. They are a response to forgiveness. So in order to answer the question, what do we do now? We need to first start with understanding what this passage does and does not say. It does not say God responds to our changed hearts and lives with forgiveness. It does say we respond to God's forgiveness with changed hearts and lives. It does not say God responds to our changed hearts and lives with forgiveness. It does say we respond to God's forgiveness with changed hearts and lives. Y'all are lucky because the pre-K teacher in me right now is like, I should have them repeat it back to me because that, that way I know that they're comprehending. But I'm not going to do that because you guys aren't pre-Kers. Literally none of you are now. Solly graduated pre-K. Congrats, Solly. <laughs> what did he say? Yeah. <laughs> so in light of this, what do we do now? We do exactly what the disciples did in response to the ascension. We carry on about our lives preaching the good news and worshiping in all that we do. 
We take this overwhelming joy that the good news of forgiveness brings us and we carry it to everyone else. Because that's what you do when you hear the good news. You worship, and in, in doing so, you carry that good news to others. I didn't become a Christian until I was 16 years old. What finally got me to step foot in a church was that I had a friend in my sophomore English class who I knew that she went to church, I knew that she was a part of a youth group, and I knew that church was a very big part of her life. And I also knew plenty of other Christians in my high school. And this girl, you could just tell that there was something different with her. There, you could tell that there was something that church meant to her that it didn't mean to anybody else. And I reached out to her one day. I was at one of the lowest points in my life, and I just reached out to her and said, I don't know why, but I, I feel like you're the only person who can help me here. And she ended up inviting me to come with her. And the reason that I even reached out to her to begin with was because the way that she lived her life, the way she talked about her God, you could tell that there was something more. And when I was out of other options, I wanted a taste of what that something more was. That's what you do when you hear the good news. You worship in everything that you say and everything that you do, and in doing so, you begin to carry that good news to others. Worship, believe it or not, does not only look like coming to church on Sundays and singing some songs and hearing a sermon. We are a people who are called to worship in everything that we say and do. Changing our hearts and our lives so that they reflect the character and nature and mission of God is an act of worship. Choosing words and actions that appropriately reflect who God is, is an act of worship. Proclaiming that there is another way, the way of the kingdom, when the world around us seems to constantly want us to choose a partisan side, is an act of worship. Praying the Lord's Prayer, praying your kingdom come, your will be done is an act of worship. And then living as if we actually believe that God's kingdom is already in our midst is an act of worship. Showing grace and mercy toward the people who are different from us. The people we disagree with, the people we don't like. is an act of worship. So what do we do now? We carry on with our lives in worship. I think the most significant part of the Ascension story, also the part of the Ascension story that I think we sometimes overlook, is the fact that before Jesus ascends, he blesses the disciples. And this blessing is significant for the disciples, but it's also significant for us because this same blessing is passed on to us. When we pray this story, when we remember this story, when we celebrate this story, that same blessing is passed on to us. Jesus doesn't leave the disciples empty-handed with an overwhelming task. 
He doesn't turn them loose and say, good luck, you're on your own now. I'm out. Peace. He commissions them. He calls them. But first, he blesses them. And then everything that the disciples do follows this blessing. And this is good news because it means that we're not left to our own devices. God is with us. God blesses us. God keeps us. And in doing so, God enables us to live according to God's ways. And it's not a one-time thing. It's something that God knows we sometimes need to be reminded of a lot. And each time God reminds us of it, God reminds us with the same amount of grace and compassion and love as before. This is what it means to be a people of resurrection. It's what it means to be a people called to worship. Because the God who calls us to worship in everything that we do is the same God who enables us to do so. So the call to new life that this passage gives us is the call to receive Christ's blessing. Receive this blessing as a gift. Receive it with joy, with celebration, with delight. Receive this blessing without questioning whether or not you deserve it, whether or not you need to earn it, whether or not you need to give anything in return for it. Receive it as a gift. Receive this blessing and then go and live as if you believe God's promises are true. Go and worship, go in celebration and praise and thanksgiving. And as you learn to live as if you believe these promises are true, may others see your joy and your worship and begin to believe these promises too. Because that's how we preach resurrection. That's how we preach forgiveness. That's how we preach a changed heart in life. God of life and resurrection, for so long we have misunderstood the words of this passage. And with the best intentions, we've caused a lot of damage in the way that we have interpreted these words. But this passage proclaims your forgiveness. It proclaims the joy and the goodness of a changed heart and life in response to that forgiveness. So forgive us for the ways that we have misused this text. And teach us to live as if we actually believe what this text says. Your blessing enables us to live our lives in worship, to live as if we actually believe your promises are true. So continue to enable us to live in this way, that all may encounter your goodness, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen.